We'll have time afterwards for fellowship and connecting with one another as the family of God or with visitors and people that might be here for the first time. We're glad that you're with us, all of us, at our 1030, 1045 service. Uh, the countdown begins to going back to one service, and we're excited about that. Um, but if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to James chapter 4. We're going to look at James chapter 4, verse 13, and we're going to be going through chapter 5, verse 6. So I'm going to invite Dana Hosher to come on up, who, as you just heard, it was unanimously elected to become a deaconess of our church. So it's super exciting. And why not throw her up here? Yeah. If you're new or you've been with us for a while, we've been in the book of James uh, from January on in this spring, if you want to call it spring sermon series, uh, looking at what it looks like to live in a fractured world. Uh, and as we've looked at that, we've seen that through the letter of James, using wisdom, right? Using wisdom. Then in the midst of a fractured world, we can bring wholeness. Not because of anything we can do, but obviously because of God who invites us into the work that he is doing to bring wholeness and restoration to a world that is broken and fractured. And today, James continues that. You know, I was sick last week, so John definitely stepped up to the plate and, and preached the sermon for us. Um, but these, these were supposed to be two different sermons. Uh, and so I've combined it into one, and I was still able to keep it to like 20, 25 minutes, I think. Um, but that's what we're going to do today. And we're going to look at two aspects of what it looks like to live in a fractured world and God calling us to these two aspects. So let's give attention to God's word as Dana reads the scripture for us. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Dana. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we ask that you would give us ears to hear eyes to see, so that, Lord, we might be a part of the work that you are doing to bring wholeness in a fractured world. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For some of us, or maybe all of us uh, who have kids, we are entering into spring break. And so some of you might be thinking about traveling somewhere, you're getting all your plans and itinerary ready to go. Uh, we, our family is going to be going up to Chicago midweek and into Sunday and Monday, uh, but there was a family or a couple in our church a few years ago that took a spring break trip, a husband and wife, and they were going to go out of the country. And we can all relate to this because maybe, hopefully all of us have gone on trips, small or big. But the thing that we always worry about or get anxious about is the fact that we might overlook things that we should have packed up when we go to our destination. And so this couple was very keen on making sure that they had everything ready and prepared. Clothes, check. Toiletries, check. Phone charger, check. Swimsuit, check. And of course, passport, check. So they go to the airport, they go through security, they get on the flight, and while they're flying, trying to rest and filling out their little immigration form or custom form, the wife looks at the husband and goes, oh no, we have a huge problem. And the husband goes, I know, I forgot my sunglasses. And she's like, no, not sunglasses. I don't care about your sunglasses. My passport expires tomorrow when we're in another country. Now, long story short, they made it back safely to St. Louis and they're with us in this congregation and I see them here today. I won't say who. <laughs> but the point of my story is that with such an important detail, they fail to over or they fail to look 
at this important date of expiration on their passport. It wasn't just the wife or the husband. It was the TSA officer who led them through security. It was probably the flight agent of that airline who checked them in and looked at everything. And yet every single person along the way overlooked such an important detail, the expiration date and sunglasses. (laughs) Here, James isn't talking about overlooking passports or sunglasses. What James wants to show us is that as we follow Jesus, In a fractured world, called to bring wholeness, we tend to forget these two things or overlook these areas, time and money. Time and money. And it's so grave when we overlook it that what James says is, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. He's saying, when you presume upon the future, be it tomorrow, where you go to lunch after church, what you do in a year, where you're going for spring break, it is evil. It is sin. And when he begins to talk about money, the accumulation of money and your possessions and your riches, look how how grave and how stark his warning is to us. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Something that we overlook so easily in our lives as followers of Jesus. Why does James take such a hard stance and one that's a stark warning for us? Why? Well, that's what I want to look at briefly as we go through this passage. And I want to begin with the presumption of our time. Look at how he poses this. He says, come now, verse 13, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. There is an attitude in which we live our lives that we presume upon tomorrow. When Hannah and I first moved to St. Louis to go to graduate school at Covenant Seminary, when we landed here and we set our foot upon the grounds of St. Louis, we hated it. We detested this place and we began our planning and plotting for what was next after four years of being in graduate school. We had everything lined up. We presumed, we said we're going to have our first kid our last year so that we deliver right after we graduate. And when we graduate, the day we graduate, we are getting on a plane, we're flying to California and planting a church because that is the promised land. (laughs) And It's almost 18 years to this day, and we are still in St. Louis, and we love this city, and we love our community. But there was a a boasting, a presumption upon how Hannah and I thought about our future, and that is what he is warning against. When we presume upon tomorrow and boast, that is evil and sin. Now, of course, planning is unavoidable. We have to plan in the midst of our busy lives with so many different schedules. We have to sync one phone to another phone and we have to plan our kids' calendar and our friends' events and birthday parties and weddings and dates and all these different aspects of our lives. We need to plan to survive, don't we? 
but it's the presumptive, presumptive attitude that says, I'm going to do this and that, and my life will be fine. Think about it even in another way. Like we talk about, you know, well, then we can't plan. Well, for even our family, we have yet to put a will together. We haven't saved enough for a rainy day. And what that shows me as I reflected on this passage is I am presuming upon tomorrow. Oh, I'll get to that because there will be another month. There'll be another year. We're not going to die. We'll be fine. It is that kind of attitude that James is trying to reveal in our hearts. Look at verse 14. There's this view of our future and ourselves that he says is actually very dangerous. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? <clears throat> for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. If you've been a part of our Ecclesiastes Bible studies, this rings true, doesn't it? It sounds very familiar. James is putting his finger on this uncomfortable truth that we don't know what the future holds. It is uncomfortable. The fact that you might be sitting here and not hear the end of this sermon because the Lord takes you away, because you are a mist. That you drive home to lunch or wherever you're going and you do not make it home because you get in a car accident and die. These are true realities and we don't like to think about it. And so we boast and we plan thinking that these things will happen and we presume and we're confident in it. Let me ask you a question this morning as you think about being a mist, a vapor. Here for just one moment and then gone. James is saying, that's our life. And I did this in the first service. Only three people raised their hands. And I want you to raise your hand. This is not rhetorical. Who here, raise your hand, can name your great-grandfather? That's not a lot. That's not a lot. That's part of your family. These are people in our lineage, and yet we don't even know our great-grandfather's name. We are forgotten. And yet we live and presume our lives as if we will live for eternity. This is what one scholar said. He said, we put all our arrangements into the plans that we make as if they are a given. The business trip, the spring break, the weekend seeing friends, the hours we'll put in at the office, the projects we'll take on, everything from housework to homework is not just planned, it's assumed. Our default view is that once we plan something, it will happen. And James throws a cup of cold water into our faces. We don't know what will happen. None of us do. We need to factor that into our view of the future. That's what James says. He says in verse 15, Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. If the Lord wills. Now, this isn't some magic formula. This doesn't prove that you're holy. I went to a church in college where everyone said it and that was how you knew that person was holy because they would say, oh, if the Lord wills, we'll meet up together later. <laughs> or it doesn't give husbands the right to say, I'll clean the dishes if the Lord wills, right? Rather, this is a heart disposition that says, I am trusting that this all belongs to the Lord. And we'll get there in our third point. But there's another thing he wants us to make sure we do not overlook, and it's accumulation of our money and our possessions. 
James seems to be identifying three things about our money and possessions that we take for granted as followers of Jesus. I don't know if you read, I popped, I checked my newspaper this morning, my app, and it showed how Silicon Valley Bank just went bankrupt this past Friday. I mean, companies that had millions upon millions of dollars lost it all. And we presume, as we do with time, that this money that, is, that we have is all ours, and yet it can be taken away in an instant. And he shows us in three ways the accumulation of our money and possessions is sinful that we need to address and not overlook. First, hoarding. Verse 2, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Now think about that. This is such a dire warning for us who live here in America. Now you probably heard this before, but it needs to be a reminder for us. Every single one of us here in this room are rich when you consider where you live globally. We live in a society where accumulation is seen as good in its own right. The more you amass, money and possessions is actually commended for you. It is one of the ways that the culture measures your success. The more you have, the more successful you are. And yet what does James remind us? It's all it all corrodes. It all erodes. It all gets eaten by moths and is taken up by fire. And yet what do we do? We accumulate and we hoard and we save it all for ourselves. But the other way in which he shows us our blind spot is with the injustice as us who are accumulating all this wealth. Behold, verse 4, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. I know for a lot of us, we go, well, this doesn't apply to me. You know, I don't, I'm the, I don't run an entire company and I don't have a company out in China or in India or India or Pakistan, wherever. But what we see here is the heart of God. God defends the poor and the oppressed. He cares about those who have been taken for a ride and the rich get richer while the poor get poorer. So for us as followers of Jesus, I think about my, our community here. The question that we need to think about is, are we being responsible consumers? Now, I know it's, it's, it's gray. You can't just say, well, this is what we need to do. We need to not do that. It's a complicated issue. But are we being responsible as consumers in what we buy and what we don't? Another question, what does it look like to treat those in the service industry? Not just at restaurants or at shops and stores, but how about those even that do service for, provide service for you at your home? Cleaning services, lawn services, the Ubers that you take. As we think about these people in the service industry, how are we treating those that are serving us in these ways? How do we treat them? Are we generous with them? Are we gracious and merciful? When things don't go always right at the restaurant, do we show compassion and mercy rather than condemnation and wanting to get something free? Because we see the injustice, because the rich get richer, because we live off of the back of those who are poor and oppressed. 
But lastly, extravagance. Verse 5, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fed your heart, hearts in a day of slaughter. It's not a matter of just having good, good things. We need the best things. We need the ultimate things, and we need more of it. And we accumulate all this extravagance and wealth. Now, James isn't saying we can't have good things. Scripture shows us, and we've gone through that in the Art Ecclesiastes series. God gives us good things because he's created it for us. We're called to eat, drink, and be merry. We're to enjoy the good gifts that God has given to us. But it's different when what he's talking about here is an attitude that sees ourselves at the center of our possessions and our extravagance. The extravagance and the things we hoard is for myself and for my gain and for my self-interest. But what James is saying, are you actually living and are these things actually so that you might accumulate and live for the good of others, for the common good of those in your neighborhood, at work, at school, in your workplace. Do we do these things for ourselves or do we do these in order to be people who show mercy and grace for others in need? Jesus said that to the disciples. He said, take care. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Yet for many, if not most of us, we have two cars. We have a roof over our head. We have streaming services times 10. We live in extravagance and abundance. And the question we don't ask ourselves is, what is enough? Have you ever asked yourself, is this enough? We tend not to. Do we ask ourselves, do I have access here in my life? And here, Dutch, uh, Dutch economist Bob Goodsword asked this question. This is how he answered it. He said, it is in knowing the meaning of enough that we receive a sense of abundance. For abundance is the awareness of having more than enough. I think he nailed it on the head. The problem for us is that we don't know what enough is. And so guess what? We experience our lives so that we might have more. And because we don't know what enough is, abundance feels like scarcity. Abundance feels like scarcity. It's not a sin to make money and have good things and nice things. The problem is that we think all of our accumulation is for myself. And we don't know what enough is. But when we understand what abundance is, we're able to give and share and not consider it mine. So what does this mean for us? As we bring time and money together, this was a question for me, taking two sermons into one. What does this actually mean for us as followers of Jesus? I think two things. One is a heart issue. And the other thing is a very practical way to use our hands. First, Humility and trust. If the Lord wills. It is one that says, I trust the Lord, though I don't know what tomorrow will bring. Though I want to plan my future out and control everything, right? Because that's the only way we could do that. Out of a fear of death and the uncertainty and the anxiety, the only way we can deal with that is to control. But rather than with close friends, we're opening up our fists, saying, opening up our hands to say, Lord, I trust you. I'm humbling myself to know that your ways are good. You are sovereign. So whether it's the joys 
or the grief, the giving or the taking. I'm putting myself under your hands because you are good and you are right. Anxiety is such a big thing. But one way we could do that is to give that to the Lord and say, you are good. You have proven yourself in the past and you will continue to do so in the future. The other thing that we need to ask ourselves as we think about what this looks like as we think about time and our possessions is our priorities. How do you prioritize your time? How do you prioritize your possessions and your money? I was going to do an object lesson, but it just would be too messy, so I decided not to do it. But maybe some of you are familiar with this object lesson where you have a jar, a big jar that represents your life. And so what a teacher will do is they'll bring out golf balls and fill the golf ball or fill the jar with the golf balls all the way to the brim. And they'll ask the, te- ask the students, is the jar full? And of course, students say yes. Well, then he proceeds to take out rocks, small little pebbles. So he'll take out the pebbles and, f- and put it all into that same jar that the students thought was full. And he'll find its way into all the cracks and all the spaces. And then he'll ask, is it full? And the students will say, yes, I think it's full now. He'll grab sand. And they begin to pour sand and shake that jar until the sand makes its way through all the extra spaces. It has tiny little spaces of grain that nothing else could fit. And then he'll take liquid or water and do it again and pour liquid and water or other beverages in there. Say, now is it full? And they'll say yes. And what's the point? Well, the the golf balls and all those other things represent the priorities of our life. The golf balls being the most important your walk and your faith with Christ, our church family, your biological family, whatever it is, those priorities. But what we do is we flip it, don't we? And so what happens when you flip it is you pour the water, the sand, the pebbles. By the time you get to the golf balls, you can only fill like half of the golf balls in there. Things that are absolutely important. And when we do that, this is where we get stuck with our time and our money. Because our lives are busy. We're productive and we're too productive, wanting to make more money, trying to be more efficient with our time. And we get things backwards. And I think what James wants to show us here and to to, to be able to apply this into our lives is to ask the question, am I prioritizing what is important? In the midst of the busyness of life and the money that you make and the possessions you have, how are you prioritizing it for the glory of God and for the sake of others? What are we sharing and teaching and discipling the next generation of what that looks like? And what James is showing us, we need to prioritize because if the Lord wills, we leave it in his hands and we prioritize the things that are important as we follow Jesus because everything else will fade. We are a mist. They'll be burned up and rotted and corroded. But we know with Christ, there is life. And we need to ask ourselves, what is important? We can only do this when we gaze upon Christ. Yes, for a moment, you might be be able to do this with behavioral adjustments. But really, this is a heart issue. And as we gaze upon Christ, especially during this Lenten season, 
as we remember his suffering, as we remember his death, isn't that what we see in Christ? James says, if you don't do this or do that, and because you know what I have said, and you don't do it, it's a sin. Well, guess what? We all fail at this. We all stumble. But Christ was perfect. When it came to time, and submitting himself under the Father, didn't he do that perfectly? Even in the most critical moment where he was in agony, pure agony, where blood was dripping from his head as he knelt down and prayed to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane, what does he say? Not my will, but your will be done. Take this cup from me. I can't do it. This suffering, this death, I cannot do it. But if it is a will, as I place myself under the trust and humble myself under my Father's will and sovereignty. I'll do whatever you ask. And we talk about possessions and giving. Jesus did not give out of excess and abundance. He gave out of his poverty. Paul reminds us of that in 2 Corinthians. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Those any person in the cosmos that could live in extravagance, it was him. The creator of the universe. The one who has all power. He could have lived, kicked up his feet, and lived life to the fullest. But what does he do? He humbles himself, comes down to this earth, becomes, puts on flesh, becomes a created one. And dies for us. Why? Because his eyes are upon you. His gaze is upon you. His delight is upon you. And when you gaze upon that love from him, your heart changes and you're willing to submit yourself to him. You're willing to reprioritize your life and your money and your time because of the gaze of him who loves you unconditionally. Even when the worst is known, love is offered. And it's when we see him like that, we can begin to not overlook these areas, but to change our lives and bring wholeness to this fractured world. Let me read this passage for us, and then I'll close in prayer. But this brings the time and possessions together from the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus spoke. Hear these words. Close your eyes if you need to. This is one of my favorite verses that reminds us that in the midst of an anxious world, in the world where we want to control all things, we can put our gaze upon Christ. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what, will you, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these lilies. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, your son who went to the depths of hell for us, who agonized and suffered and died at the hands of his own creation, us, so that we might be able to experience the love and gaze of you upon us, your delight. And so, Lord, I pray that though we do worry, though we are anxious about the future and we presume and we want to control and we want to hoard and we want to live in luxury and extravagance for ourselves, Lord, I pray that you begin to change our hearts as we gaze upon you because only you can do that. Transform our hearts from the inside out, even as we come to the table. Strengthen us through this food, this meal that you have prepared for us, that as we eat and drink, we might be able to trust in you, humble ourselves, and know that there's nothing we need to worry because as you care for the lilies, as you care for the birds, how much more you care and love us. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.